0: 2 Samuel chapter 11. I hear chapter 11, I think bankruptcy, and what an appropriate image for this particular chapter of Scripture. King David, a man after God's own heart, yet still just a sinful man. Last time we saw the Davidic covenant, God made covenant with David, an everlasting covenant that... A seed of David would always reign from David's throne. And we said that that pointed to Christ. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant because no sinful man could ever keep the conditional part of the covenant. It's going to take God Himself to fulfill the Davidic covenant. And yet God had to become man so he could fulfill man's portion of the covenant. It took a God-man to fulfill the covenant for us. Yet up to this point, pretty much everything we've seen about David has been positive. And he was set up by God in Scripture to be a foil to Saul, a contrast to Saul. Saul, a man after man's own heart. A man obsessed with his own happiness, his own glory fulfilling his own desires. David, a man after God's own heart, a man concerned with God's glory. I'll go and fight Goliath because Goliath is mocking my God. I'll shepherd Israel, not for my own glory because this is God's people. I want to build a house for God because it doesn't seem right that I should get to live in a palace while God dwells in tents. And he's becoming our hero, David. And it's human nature to look at our heroes and begin to only see ourselves in them. We don't see ourselves in Saul anymore. Saul's history. I'm not like Saul. I'm like David. I'm a good guy. I'm better than a good guy. I'm a great guy. I deserve to lead. I deserve to lead my family, I deserve to lead others. I deserve in my case to be pastor. I I deserve these things. I've made much of myself in my mind, and I see myself in David. And God has done this on purpose, and he has set us up for a humbling. Okay, if you see yourself like David, let's keep reading about David. You know, if you keep reading, after the Davidic covenant, he, he, he does some more good. He conquers most of Israel's enemies, and then there's this wonderful scene, I hope that you'll read on your own time, where he wants to make good on a promise he made to his beloved friend Jonathan, and he's looking for somebody in the family to bless, and he finds out there's a crippled named Mephibosheth, and... Mephibosheth calls himself a dead dog. He's, he's crippled, he's lame, he can't go out to war, he can't provide for a family, he can't serve in the king's court. Anything in a man's mind that would make you feel of worth, of value, something to be proud about, Mephibosheth had none of these things. And in Mephibosheth we see ourselves spiritually, nothing to offer the king, And yet the king wants to bless us, and he blesses Mephibosheth because of the covenant he made with Jonathan. And God said he would do the same for David. I've made covenant with you, and I will bless your family line. Whether or not they're faithful to keep their end of the covenant, And we can take that all to ultimate realities. That is our spiritual reality with God. He's made covenant with us, the new covenant in the blood of Christ, which we receive by faith in Christ, and then we promise to be obedient to Christ, and we fail again and again and again, and God doesn't kick us out of the family. Amen. Amen. When you're in the family and He's adopted you as a son or a daughter, you're Once a son or a daughter, always a son or a daughter of the Most High. The contrast between David and Saul had become so great that we're tempted to look at David as the ultimate hero. We're tempted to look at David as the ultimate model of our faith. Instead of seeing David as the shadow of Christ. David's the shadow, Christ is the substance. David's just pointing us to Christ. Unless we forget that, we're going to see that David is a sinful man just like the rest. Yes, he had moments of brilliance, but a man nonetheless and not perfect. Our earthly heroes are temporary role models. They're never meant to be worshipped. And yet we live in a culture that worships celebrity. Right? And even as Christians, we look for celebrity. I know you've got your favorite singer or your favorite actor or your favorite favorite athlete or and we kind of live vicariously through them and it also seems to be the American way to root just as hard when our heroes fall. It makes the news cycle, and all the gossip, and all the, I need more details, and I need to find out what happened, and how could this happen? What do you mean, how could this happen? They're a human being. It was inevitable. And the greater we lift our heroes up, it seems, the harder the fall. Many lessons to be learned here, but none of the lessons this morning can be learned without humility it has to be received with humility because we're going to hear things today that we don't like to hear about ourselves. But until you're willing to hear these things about yourself, then God isn't so great, and He's not so loving, and He's not so gracious. But when we see ourselves for who God sees us in our sinfulness, His love becomes amazing and His grace amazing. And so let the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, reveal to you today, your true condition. You think you're like David? Well, you probably are, more than you'd like to admit. We don't get any um, backstory here. The story of David's sin goes right into the sin. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed in At Jerusalem. Why? He's supposed to be out there. He's the commander in chief. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. He's the hero of Israel. He's the commander in chief. He's the general. He's the guy in white Christmas that we all root for, right? Because he doesn't sleep until his troops have slept and he doesn't eat until his troops have eaten. So they're all out to war and David's staying home in the comfort of his own palace. And he's not that old at this point, folks. He's somewhere in middle age. He could be out there. Maybe he's not going to be in the front lines, but he should be out there. Kings went to war in the spring because you know you've got many months of good weather ahead. And you've got harvest. Stuff is growing. There's food to eat. And if you get out there fast enough you can steal your enemy's food before they have time to harvest it. So, there was always this game to harvest before the other nations made war on you. Now, we think of much better things we could do in the spring. But this was life then. If we don't go on the offensive, somebody's going to come and put us on the defensive. And so I would imagine that they went out earlier and earlier and earlier, and that time home with your family got shorter and shorter and shorter. And so they went to make war in the spring, but David stayed home. That's his first sin. He neglected his kingly duties. All the men are making sacrifice for the good of the nation, and David staying home in the comfort of his palace. And again, we get no backstory. Maybe he had an illness. Maybe there was important business to conduct at home. but God doesn't give us this information. And I looked for it. Because I want to know why he was home. I want to know why he fell into sin. What was going through his mind in the months leading up to this? I find it hard to believe that it was just a snap decision that day. Oh, naked woman bathing, I think i 'll go sin not not a guy who's lived the life that we have seen well we we do get some clues, but I want you to hear this we're not looking for the details to make sense. Of why he sins, so we can excuse his sin. Oh, well, okay. I don't think there's anything you could find that would excuse this behavior, right? Sin is sin and it's ugly. And God makes no excuses for it. Yet we want to know because if we're suspicious of our own sin nature and humble enough to understand, I'm not, um, if David could fall into this kind of sin, a guy like me could fall a lot easier. So what happened in his life so I can take notes and learn something and maybe cut off the sin before it has a chance to come to fruition? I also want to have compassion for David. When people fall into sin, I want to have compassion for them. I'm not going to excuse it and brush it away, but compassion, this word, this beautiful word that doesn't have an equivalent word in most languages because this is seen as a weakness in honor-shame societies. To step into somebody else's shoes and grieve with them, weep with them, feel guilty with them. Why would I want to feel guilty with somebody? That's the last thing I'd want to do. But when we see others fall into sin, we should have compassion as fellow sinners. And pity. We should pity David. Oh, this is bad, David. This is really bad. You've sinned before a holy God. Our first reaction to when somebody sins shouldn't be, well, this has made my life inconvenient. It should be, you have sinned against a holy God. I tremble for you. And I have sinned in front of a holy God. And it's not a place any of us should want to be. So I would hope that the Holy Spirit would cultivate compassion and pity in your heart for David and suspicion of your own weakness. What happened to David, and how could I make sure it doesn't happen to me, and how can I help my Christian friends not fall into sin? Now, when evening came, David arose from his bed. Well, there's a clue. What was he doing in bed all day? Perhaps he was depressed. If you've ever been depressed, you sleep all the time, and you feel like you don't have the strength to get out of bed, and it just feeds on itself. And you lay in bed thinking negative thoughts until you're almost paralyzed. Maybe he was thinking, I'm old, I I, I can't go out to war anymore, I don't got it anymore. I don't know. Again, the Bible doesn't give us those details, but we do see he was in his bed. He walked around on the roof of his house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. We hear nothing about Bathsheba's heart and we know God cares about the inner man and the inner woman more than the outer. And yet, that's part of David's problem here. He judged this woman by her outer appearance. He saw someone pretty and decided that would be the answer to his troubles. Now, what was she doing up on the roof bathing? This was common practice. There would be a communal bathing area. It'd be on the roof, because normally your roof would be higher than everyone else's house, so nobody would see you up there. And you'd be exposed to the sun, so you could dry out there on the roof. But the king's palace is taller than her roof, so David has a view onto the rooftop. One might say, well, she should have known David was home and shouldn't have been bathing. No, David wasn't supposed to be home. It would be a fair assumption that for her to say, no one's going to see me up here. All the men are out to war. The Bible never asks us to judge Bathsheba's heart here. But we want to. Did she know what she was doing? Was she bathing where she knew David could see her? Did she want to be seen? Did she feel neglected by her husband? We don't get the details. And yet our world, if it was telling this story, would be all about the details, all the tawdry details, all the gossipy, juicy details. And God spares us from all the background story and cuts right to the chase. David sinned. He wanted something he shouldn't have, and he went and he got it. Was he thinking about God? No. Was he thinking about Bathsheba? No. Was he thinking about Bathsheba's family? No. Who was David thinking about? David. You want a recipe for sin? Let's do this like backwards reverse psychology thing. You want to fall into sin? I'll tell you how to fall into sin. Think about yourself all day long and what you want and what's going to make you happy and what you deserve and what you don't have and what you think you should have and you'll fall into sin. Actually, all those thoughts are sinful thoughts, so you've already fallen into sin. How do you pull yourself out of the pity party? You serve others. You think about God and what He's done for you and how gracious He's been to you and how much He's provided, and you give Him thanks and praise. And then you go look for somebody to serve and meet other people's needs. And you say, well, if I meet other people's needs, won't that make them selfish? (laughs) That's just your flesh looking for an excuse not to serve other people. In a perfect world, I'll meet your needs, you meet mine. And that's the way it should work. Is there a chance that if you're busy meeting my needs, I might just selfishly let you keep meeting my needs and not return the favor? I'd say there's more than a possibility of that happening. And yet, the contingencies of people taking advantage of us doing good and doing the right thing should never stop us from doing good and doing the right thing. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Snap out of it, David. You know who that is. That's Uriah's wife. Uriah, in your inner, court, your inner, your, you know, like King Arthur had his Knights of the Round Table, Uriah would have been one of David's inner circle. There may have even been another Uriah in the, in the circle. So this was Uriah the Hittite. So we knew which Uriah it was. Not meaning that he's not an Israelite now. He's probably a couple generations back a Hittite. Now he's an Israelite, but they call him Uriah the Hittite. You know, the Hittites were one of the enemies of Israel. I wonder if his friends called Uriah that, just kind of to tease him. (laughs) That's Uriah's wife. And Bathsheba, that's the daughter of Eliam, another family of nobility in Israel is researching these names. So she, she had connections. She wasn't just some peasant woman. She, she was connected. Her father was connected. She went to the upper crust parties. So David sent and, and inquired about the woman. I read that already. Verse 4, David sent messengers, plural, to, to bring her. And when she had come to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. Again, no tawdry details. The deed was done. She returned home. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Now keep in mind here how many people are already involved with this. You don't just walk into the king's bedroom without getting through a lot of layers of guards and servants. And servants always know what's going on. And you know they talked. And you know word got out of the palace. Because people saw Bathsheba coming in and then going. And yet sin is so blinding that David really thinks he can keep this whole thing under wraps. I am a little concerned here that we never hear Bathsheba saying, I shouldn't be coming over here and... I shouldn't be doing this. And yet God doesn't give us, again, those details. So the Lord has taught me to assume the best about people until you have solid information otherwise. So what's David going to do? How about confess his sins, repent, and get him out in the open? Well, that's not what he does. He puts a plan together. David sent to Joab, who's his chief right-hand man, commander of the armies in his absence, sent word to Joab in the front line, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Oh, my goodness. You see what's going on here? He's feigning concern for the troops and Joab. and, and Tell me, how are things going? Oh, I wish I was there. You know, I would totally be there right now. You know, but I, I, I couldn't be there. And my heart's just breaking for all of you. And, um. The man has slept with this man's wife and now he's lying to his face, telling him, I am so concerned for you and the other troops. Does he have any conscious realization of what he's doing right now? Have you been around somebody so steeped in sin that they are completely blind to their actions and their words? Yeah, and that person may have been you at one point. That's what sin does to us. That's why it's so deadly. It's like drunkenness. By the time you figure out you've had too much to drink, you had too much to drink three drinks ago. You can't can't think rationally now. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, wrote half of the psalms in the Psalter, is not thinking rationally here at all. Then David said to Uriah, Hey, why don't you go down to your house and wash your feet? That's euphemistic for go enjoy your wife tonight. Wash, wash your feet. You know, bathe. And Uriah understood completely what David was telling him to do. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. I wish I knew what the present was. But the point is that he's trying to butter them up. Maybe it was something that would help them get in a mood as a couple, some flowers, a, a, a feast, I don't know, some wine. I don't know, some of the king's best wine. I mean, he all but went down there and played his harp for them. Because he needs Uriah to sleep with his wife so that when she has the baby, people will go, Oh, it must have when Uriah came home from the front lines. Which, incidentally, would have made David look even more heroic. Oh, because David called this man home as a favor to enjoy his wife, and now this beautiful baby is born because of it. David, everything he touches turns to gold. Yet, things don't go according to plan. Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, Uriah wouldn't go home and sleep with his wife. He slept with the servants in the servants' quarters. He treated himself as just another servant. He's a man of integrity. Now, when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? You've come a long way, and it's been a long time since you've been home. Go home, buddy. Your wife is waiting for you. Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, and this is just heaping hot coals on David's head, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field, right, ready to put their lives on the line and do battle. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. So David tries plan B. Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I'll, I'll let you go back to the front line. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him and he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. And he sent him home again. Maybe he'll forget his vow. In the evening, he went out to lie in his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Strike two. Now what? At this point, David's committed the crime of neglecting his kingly duties. He's not shepherding his people. He's indulged in pornography, ancient pornography, before there was internet. He... Looked at a woman who was new, didn't cover his eyes, didn't turn away, and began to think in his mind how great life would be if I could have her. That's the heart of pornography. I'm not thinking about the woman, or if women look at pornography too, I'm not, I'm not thinking about him. I'm just thinking about what they could do for me. Make me happy. It's just pure, pure selfishness. Treating another person as an object. Coveting. And God says in the Ten Commandments, Specifically, what's the first thing you shall not covet? Your neighbor's wife. This is, this is the man David who wrote Psalm 119. This acrostic psalm, the longest psalm in the Bible, about how much he loves God's Word and obeying God's Word. And he breaks half the Ten Commandments in one, one evening. Now he's going to commit conspiracy... He's going to conspire with others to get rid of Uriah. The plan is, I'll get rid of Uriah, and then Bathsheba will be a widow, and I'll be the great shepherd of Israel and marry this poor widow and adopt her child as my own. Even though at least oh a couple thousand people know the truth by now. Good plan, David. It gets uglier, though. Now, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Uriah has to deliver his own death warrant. But because he's so loyal to the king, he's not going to open it and read it. It has the king's royal seal on it. We don't even recognize David at this point. Who is this guy? Where's the shepherd boy that killed Goliath? Where's the guy who wouldn't kill Saul? Where's the guy who felt guilty when he cut a piece of Saul's robe off? I mean, he's so torn up over a sin that most of us would be like, come on, guy, it's okay. And now he's doing this, and he's... Where's the remorse? Where's his conscience? He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. Well, no, leaving anything up to imagination. That's pretty clear. And I can't believe Joab went along with this. But if the king orders it, the king orders it. And that's the way it works. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. So by this time in battle against Ammon, they knew who the fiercest warriors were on the other side. And so he sends Uriah to do battle against their fiercest warriors. Then the men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech? The son of Jeroboosheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So Joab is either anticipating that David is going to be angry that they made such a stupid strategic blunder It must almost be proverbial among the generals of Israel. You don't go that close to the wall. Remember the guy who had the millstone dropped on his head by the woman? Stay away from the wall. So he's going to go get the news and they sent the people into battle and Uriah went into battle and they got close to the wall and the archers hid them and He's anticipating either David is honestly going to forget that he ordered him to do this and go, you idiot, who ordered this? Well, Joab did. Or he's anticipating that David is going to put on a show and act outraged because that's what a king who wasn't suspecting that one of his top men was going to be murdered in battle... Hard to say. Joab doesn't know how David's going to react. But right, if David's trying to cover things up, that's the way a king should respond, with anger and righteous indignation. And I love that man. He was one of my best soldiers. Who ordered him near the wall? And so he tells the messenger, just tell him Uriah is dead. Don't try to answer his questions. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gates, and we were winning, and we pushed them back, and they were in retreat. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, so some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, And this really breaks my heart because it's lie upon lie upon lie. And then when you feign concern and compassion for others when you're holding back sin, the sin's bad enough. But this is just rubbing salt in the wounds. Then you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. This is what you tell people when people fall in battle. Hey, war is hell. War is ugly. People die. It's not like the movies where the Star Trek guys wearing the red shirts die, but none of the main characters in the blue shirts ever die. No, sometimes the heroes die, and sometimes the men that don't have your rise integrity survive. So tell tell him that tell Joab that encourage him make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it and so encourage him here's David acting like he's this great compassionate shepherd of Israel great compassionate commander in chief Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead she mourned for her husband When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. What's brilliant about this passage, the entire chapter, not one mention of what God thinks of all this. And for a while, we get wrapped up in the story and forget about God. And that's what David did. He forgot about God. That's how you fall into sin. You stop thinking about God. You stop worshiping God. You stop saying, what would Jesus do? Because Jesus wouldn't do any of this. And just when you're left wondering, how could all this happen the greatest understatement ever printed in the Bible. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. He's not getting away with any of this. Well, really, it's not an understatement. What more does God need to say? It's evil. And you may think the word evil is an understatement, but if you've been paying attention to our society, our own society... Will not use the word evil anymore. They don't call Islamic terrorism evil. They don't call abortion evil, it's even after the baby's already been born. Remember the abortion doctor Gosnell, and they found out he was killing the babies after they were born. Nobody called it evil. It just got swept under the rug, and you never saw it on the news. Even our entertainment won't call evil, evil. I know there's all the hubbub about Star Wars, but if you remember back to the movies, that the prequels that we'd all like to pretend were never made, there's a line in there where they're poking fun at President Bush indirectly through the movie, and they said, you can't trust a man who deals in absolutes. There's no good in evil, just shades of of gray. Evil is evil. When God calls something evil, it's evil. That's all you need to know about it. Don't try to color it something other than it's not. It's evil. It's not, well, you know, David's... uh, We remember reading that when he danced before the ark, it says that his wife Michal despised him in her heart. So maybe he was depressed because he had a wife who didn't love him. Well, at this point, David had seven wives and multiple concubines, so we can't pin it all on Michal. No, there's no excuse for this. It's evil, plain and simple. Don't sugarcoat it. The ultimate crime David committed was idolatry. Where's the idolatry? He made Himself to be God. If we think back to Genesis 3, the greatest crime that man and woman committed was calling good that which God called evil. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. We won't die. We'll be more alive. This is the essence of sin. To look God in the face the God who created us and created everything and created reality and defines reality and defines good and evil, and God says this very thing I'm telling you not to do will certainly bring you death, to say, I don't think so. I think it'll bring life and happiness and fulfillment and joy. It's not that Adam and Eve said, well, I know you said this would bring life, but I think this would be a little bit more life. God said, no, this will bring death you shall surely die separation from God, separation from one another, and physical death. And for man and woman to decide in their hearts that, no, I think we won't die. I think God's lying to us. I think He's holding back. This is idolatry. David, in that moment, decided he knew better than God. I'll be God. I know what I need right now. Somebody else's wife. And next thing you know, he's committing conspiracy and murder and all the rest. Sadly, if David had played his cards right, Uriah would have been the most loyal servant he ever had. And he should know this because Saul did the same thing to him. If Saul would have been kind to David, he would have had the most loyal servant ever. David did to Uriah what Saul was never able to achieve. Saul was trying to murder David. David actually committed murder. The focus on the passage is that even a God-fearing man like David can fall into gross, heinous, premeditated sin. That's the focus. And so if David, a man after God's own heart, can fall into sin, how much more can you and I fall into sin? Be suspicious, be on guard of your heart. I want you this week to read Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. David wrote both of these songs concerning this episode. We see his confession in Psalm 51 and his contrition in Psalm 32. Contrition, remorse, godly remorse, not worldly remorse. Ooh, I'm sorry I got caught. Godly remorse. We're still contrasting Saul and David. When Saul sinned and he was confronted in his sin, he did confess that he sinned, but he didn't care that he sinned. He cared more After making excuses, he cared that he might lose the kingdom and then people wouldn't revere him. So instead of caring about God's character and about his sin before a holy God, he asked Samuel the prophet, can you at least come back with me and pray for me and pretend that I'm still a great man and build me up in the eyes of the people so they'll follow me. That's not what we see from David. So the contrast is still in play. How did David respond when confronted about his sin and and you know the story about how he was confronted i mean who's going to tell the king and get in his face about this but somebody has to do it we have to go to one another in love and humility the humility of knowing i'm a sinner too and the love of saying i don't care how mad they get at me i want to win a brother back into a place where they can enjoy the blessings of God. But as long as they're walking around in unrepentant sin, they're a train wreck waiting to happen. They're making lives miserable all around them. And so we must love God and love others more than we love ourselves and confront a brother or sister in sin. And so Nathan the prophet, it's always a prophet who has to do this, right? And he comes up with this way of doing it. I think God inspired him to kind of reveal this to David through the back door here. And he says, David, we got a problem down in town. What is it? There's this guy. He's a shepherd. He has this one sweet little ewe lamb. Now, immediately, David, the shepherd, is hooked, right? He's in. Oh, he's got a little lamb. Oh, I love lambs. You know, I was, I was a shepherd boy. Well, someone came who has lots of lambs and stole this man's lamb. And David is furious. Bring him to me. Heads are going to roll. You are that man. Uriah had one wife. You had many. You stole his wife and stole his life. And David is immediately crushed. His The blinders come off and the weight, the full weight of all that sin just hits him. And I want you to read Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. Because we need to cultivate humility and re- brokenness over our sins. It doesn't come naturally. Fourth, the consequences. Just because God forgives us and cleanses us through faith in Christ doesn't mean there aren't consequences, right? You tell your kids, I forgive you, I love you. There will be consequences though and some consequences for sin continue all the way until you get to heaven and then No more consequences. Some ripples just keep going out. David's son that he had with Bathsheba dies after birth. Then one of David's sons rapes his half-sister and David fails to punish his son as he doesn't have the backbone to do it anymore. And so his other son Absalom is so upset at his dad for letting Amnon get away with this that he plots to murder his brother, to avenge his sister. And he lies to his dad, and he says, Dad, I'm going to throw a party. Will you come to it? And his dad, I don't want to go to your party. He's like, well, Dad, if you tell the rest of the royal court to come to the party, would you do that? And David says, sure. So the royal court attends, and Amnon's in the royal court, and Absalom and his gang they they jump on Amnon and murder him right in front of all the other guests at the party. And then Absalom has to flee Israel. And David doesn't send anyone after him. He's like, woe is me. I've got all these sons and they're doing evil and thinking about himself again. And he finally pardons his son without ever punishing him or correcting him. Pardons him too soon. No remorse from his son. And his son comes back to town and immediately plots to kill his own father and take the throne from him. The whole kingdom is falling apart. Everything was going great until David sinned. And now the whole kingdom is suffering because of one man's sin. Your sin will not just affect you. I guarantee it will affect everybody in your life. And then eventually David sins again by ordering a census, counting all of his troops instead of trusting in God's leadership and strength. At the end of David's life, though, we see a beautiful ending to his life. He writes one more poem, one more song, that puts the focus back on Christ and the covenant God's made with him. I'm going to read from the New King James. It reads this, uh, 2 Samuel 23. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. So here's David's words. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just. Ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. David's pointing us to Christ. If someone is going to rule over men, they must be just. But no man will be justified by his own works. How will we have a ruler over men who is just? Only God Himself can fit that description. And so David points to the covenant God made with him. Although my house is not so with God, yet He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will He not make it increase? because of God's covenant. Not because of David's goodness, not because of his perfect track record, but because of God's faithfulness to keep his covenant. This is where all our hope should be this morning, in the new covenant, in Christ's blood. Through his blood, we are washed clean and we are adopted into his family. And we can, we can say... We can say that one day the Bible tells us we will rule with Christ, we will be just, and so we can rule justified in Christ, not with a righteousness of our own, but a, a righteousness imputed to us from God. Let me close with, with these thoughts. what we've learned from Genesis to Second Samuel in a nutshell, what the Bible teaches us in the meta-narrative. The first thing God does in the Bible is reveal Himself to us, and it turns out He's more glorious and more powerful and more holy than we think. We see through a glass dimly lit. If this God of the Bible looks awesome and powerful and holy to you, it's only a fraction of how awesome and powerful and holy He really is. He's scary Holy we know nobody like him on this planet we have no analogy we learn by analogies but we have nothing with which to compare god to to put him in perspective the unbelieving world mocks at the god of the bible because they say he, the super it's too big really a god who speaks the whole universe into existence by his word how am i going to believe that you either believe it by faith or you reject it he is that powerful Secondly, we are more sinful and more weak and more prideful than we understand. Again, if, if you are starting to understand the depth of your sin and your pride and your weakness, think of this. Your own residual sin clouds your ability to judge your own sinfulness. So if you think you're really sinful, that must mean that we're actually far more sinful than we can fathom. And all we have is one another to compare ourselves to. And if I pick the right person, I can come off looking pretty good. Which I tend to do. I'm not going to pick like really good people to compare myself to. But compared to God, oh, wretched man that I am. So if God is this glorious and this powerful and this holy and we're that sinful and that weak and that prideful, how could God love us? I find it hard to even love good people. What about the people who are difficult to love? We are the difficult to love. And God chooses to love us. Beloved, the the wider this gap gets in your mind and in your heart, God's holiness and your sinfulness, God's power and your weakness, God's glory and your pride and contempt, the, the bigger that gap gets, the more amazing His grace becomes. But if you start closing that gap, like David did that day, Eh, God's not so holy and I'm I'm not so sinful. I, in fact, I deserve good things and I deserve... Then God's grace isn't amazing. Well, of course He loves me. Why wouldn't He? What's not to love? This is the message of the Bible. An infinitely glorious, powerful, holy God made human beings in His image, but because of the fall, we have become horribly sinful, weak, and prideful, and yet God chooses to love us and shed His grace on us. So what's our response then? I'm not giving you three things you're supposed to do this week. (laughs) I'm going all the way. I'm using the ultimate language here. Our response ought to be to realize that God's grace is more amazing than we know, so worship Him, praise Him, thank Him, trust Him, follow Him. Serve Him. Study Him. Magnify Him. Glorify Him. Enjoy this God who loves you against all odds. Amen? That'll take us into the new year. God bless you. Happy New Year. Have a safe New Year. You're dismissed. I'll see you back here next Sunday.